0: Good morning, and welcome to Trinity Lutheran Church in Arnsville, Pennsylvania. While, obviously, we're not sitting in the sanctuary this morning, we've got a ton of snow outside, and I hope everybody's staying safe and warm. I do know that many of you will be doing uh, devotions on your own and whatnot, so in light of that, I figured uh, we could walk through the gospel text for today and ask three main questions that I typically ask myself, Uh, whenever I'm doing my own personal study and devotion. Now, these questions are something that we've been going over in the Sunday School class that I've been teaching lately, so for some of you this will seem familiar. But those three main questions are what is the text trying to do or say? Second, what are our questions? And third, so what? Like, after all the study and after all the reflections, so what? Now, in order uh, for us to get started at all, we should probably read the text. Now, the text today comes from Luke, the fourth chapter. It starts with verse 14 and goes through verse 21. Now, uh, if you'd like, you can pause your recording and, uh, and, and find a Bible and Open up to it and read along. Otherwise, I'm just going to read uh, it to you now. Okay, so here's Luke 4, starting with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (coughs) The gospel of the Lord. So, as I noted earlier, we have a couple different or actually three different questions we're going to be asking ourselves today about this text. The first one is what is the text trying to do or say? So, in the midst of this gospel, what specifically is the writer of the gospel, is Jesus, is everything surrounded what surrounding what goes into a text what is trying to be accomplished with the way that this is written and the story itself. The second question being, what are our questions? And so what am I asking personally about the text? How am I feeling about the text? So what are the questions I have for Jesus? What are the questions I have for the gospel writer? What are the questions I have about the time that this was written? And what are the questions I have about uh, the, the way in which the church today interprets this text? And everything in between. And finally, that last question, so what? So in the light of everything, all of our study, all of our reflection, ultimately, so what? All right, so let's get started with this first question. What's the text trying to do or say? Now, the last time that we saw the Gospel of Luke, when we were together as a congregation, we saw Jesus being baptized, and after... And Luke, uh, as a gospel, has this really long beginning before even the birth of Christ, right? We hear uh, Luke actually breaks down that fourth wall. Uh, He's introducing, he's recognizing himself as the narrator, is introducing himself to Theophilus and uh, saying, basically, hey, uh, you've heard a lot, so I'm going to try to compile this gospel in a way that is both accurate and satisfying uh, for your needs, Theophilus. And so. He tells us all about John the Baptist and, uh, and his parents and eventually his birth. He tells us all about uh, Jesus' parents as well. We have interaction between Mary and Elizabeth, <coughs> the mothers of John the Baptist and Jesus. We have interaction all the way down to the moment where Jesus is baptized by John, his cousin. And at that moment of baptism, a spirit, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and we hear who God says that Jesus is, beloved and his son. Now after all that, the text, the Gospel of Luke, the text, does something really interesting. That, it is in that place that Luke decides to put the whole genealogy of Jesus. And it begins with Jesus, And he works backwards, first with Joseph, and then all the way back until Adam, of Adam and Eve. And that last, Adam's actually second to last in that list, that last name on the list is God. And so I think what the gospel is trying to do here is not bring up Jesus as if he's some radical religious thinker that's all the way out of left field and no one saw coming, rather... He's trying to plant Jesus squarely in the middle of the Jewish and Hebrew tradition. Squarely in the middle of God's interaction with humanity. Creation began with God, then came Adam, and all the way through the genealogy, we see the kings, we see uh, (laughs) the uh, prophets, we see all these kind of good stuff. And then we get to Jesus. Jesus stands squarely in the line of God's interaction with humanity, of God's promises to Israel. And so, in that moment, the gospel writer is trying to say, hey, Jesus, this character, Jesus is going to be a hinge point for the Jewish and Hebrew understanding of what God is doing. And, later on, Christians. So, after writing... Uh, The genealogy, we see the famous uh, Jesus being tempted in the desert scene. And we have those three main desert temptations, right? Uh, There's the temptation uh, uh, for Jesus to turn a stone into bread because he's hungry, and Jesus says, you know, one does not live by bread alone. There's the temptation to worship Satan and all the nations of the earth that he sees from a high place on a mountain would be his, and (coughs) Jesus rejects the notion that he should worship Satan, uh, Satan but uh, but you should only worship one God or the one God. And finally at the top of the temple there's the temptation to just jump because uh, all the angels will protect you and, and and Jesus remarks that you shall not test the Lord your God And all through this Luke notes that the Spirit or the Holy Spirit laid on him. And just like at Jesus' baptism, here in the temptations, we see God's anointing by the Holy Spirit, God's mantle laying on Jesus. I mean, it's, it's a full sign that the action of God is embodied in the action of Jesus. And so we don't have a question of who Jesus is at the beginning. It's simply, this is the continuation of God's interaction with humanity. And so after all that, we get to this fourth chapter. And in this fourth chapter, again, the very first thing that's noted, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. So once again, all these, just the whole genealogy, everything, is weighing in on this specific moment. And the text... and the text then introduces us, instead of to this cosmic understanding of Jesus, introduces us to a very intimate and finite moment where Jesus walks into the temple where he grew up. He worships, he worships with the people with whom he grew up. And at the same time, he identifies himself in a way that he's never identified himself before. He identifies himself as the one that Isaiah is writing about. Taking on the mantle that Isaiah writes about. And just like if here in Arnsville someone would pick up the the text of Isaiah and say, this is clearly about me, when Jesus does it in his hometown, every eye is locked on him. Every eye. And while... If you read a little bit farther, it's all positive, right? He was teaching, he was teaching very well in the temple before him. Now everybody's amazed at what he's been doing uh, here, but in that moment, Jesus has realigned himself in a very concrete way. As readers in the gospel, all the way up till this point, we have understood Jesus in a very universal cosmic way. But now, here in the text. We're coming to understand Jesus as a human, as a contextual, at the moment of his time, you know, human being, and there is where the gospel is going to be enacted. Think about it. We could have stayed on this cosmic level for the gospel, right? We could have talked. We could have spoke about how. Luke, could uh, the gospel writer for Luke, could have taken all of his time to write about, you know, atonement theory, or he could have taken all his time to write about, uh, uh, on a macro level, what's happening to all of humanity. But instead, what he decides to do, and what most gospel writers decide to do, is say that we know this cosmic overarching God. We know the God that's interacted with Adam and Eve. We know the God that interacts with Abraham and Sarah. We know the God that interacts with the people, with the Hebrews uh, out of Egypt. We know the God that interacts with the prophets. We know the God that interacts with the judges, with the kings. We know the God that brought people out of exile and rebuilt the second temple. We know that God not in an overarching cosmic way but simply by a very human interaction with Christ the gospel has brought the vast and the vast god we cannot see to a point where it's very contained and it's very real Here's a person that the whole crowd knew since his birth. And he's saying, I am the one. I am the one that the spirit of the Lord rests on. I'm the one that proclaims the good news. That's a really meaningful moment, right? All right, we could talk more about the text, but for the sake of time, we're going to move on to that second question. And specifically is, what are my questions. What are our questions together? <laughs> I have a lot of questions about the text, right? I mean, specifically, I'd like to know <laughs> I'd like to know whether Jesus had this premeditated, like, oh man, I already know this Isaiah text and so I'm definitely going to read it in in the middle of the synagogue today. I want to know if he thought about this a lot. Maybe this is something he came up with as he was uh, Uh, being tempted in the desert, or was this spur of the moment? Was this all of a sudden Jesus understanding he's got to do something and he realized that the scroll of Isaiah was right there and he rifled through it until he found it and all of a sudden he's proclaiming who he is. I guess the reason I ask a question like that is because I, I always get stuck between those two ideas. I mean, most of you know me, and I'm a, I'm a really big thinker, right? And so I think and think and think about what I should be doing, and I, and I plan, and I analyze, and I replan, and I <laughs> talk about it. And I try not to be kept from doing what I should be doing, but there's some moments when you just have to go along with the ride. When all of a sudden God's doing something, and you got to play catch-up because God's moving quick. And in the midst of that, I'd really like to know, with Jesus being that incarnate God in the midst of, uh, uh, in the midst of us, did, did that incarnate God plan this out, or did that incarnate God work spur of the moment? I don't really know. You know, the the text doesn't really do anything to answer that question for me. The text doesn't give any indication of uh, uh, Jesus' plan. It just simply says that Jesus did it. I have more questions about the text, too. I mean, I, I'd i also like to know... I'd like to know what the space was like, you know? Like, how many people were there? Was this a crowd of 20? Was this a crowd of 300? Was this a crowd of 1,000? I'd like to know how many of Jesus' relatives were in the room, you know? Were, were his brothers and sisters in the room? Was his mom in the room? Was his dad in the room? I don't know. I'd like to know... the emotion of the time, the emotion of the place. But again, we do hear a little bit about the emotion of the crowd. They're amazed. They're in awe. They remember who this person is. But the the family relation and, and, and even Jesus' own emotion in the midst of that moment, we don't really come to know. So, for you... This might be another good time to kind of pause the recording and maybe jot down on an index card or a piece of paper what are your questions for this text. And then also think about why are you asking those questions? Why are these things important to you? Why, in the midst of this story, do you find that, uh, that these questions rise up? And a lot of times, that's both a question about the text that you wish you knew more of, But often it's a question of your own self. It asks something that's not in a bad way, but self-fulfilling, right? We ask these questions because they relate to how we're experiencing our own faith on a regular basis. And how we're experiencing the the faith of the Christian church at large. Alright. So for the sake of time, we're going to move on to the last question. So what? Ultimately, for this text, that so what moment, for me, is kind of a, a what Lutherans would call the theology of the cross. So God being in the place that God that we would least expect to see God. Ultimately, the theology of the cross is instead of seeing God, complete using complete power and complete authority to bring God's kingdom to earth, instead of seeing God marching into Jerusalem, instead of seeing God marching throughout the world, conquering sin and death by brute force and strength, instead of that, the theology of the cross tells us that in the place where we least expect to see God is where we find God. And that would be in human form and dead on a cross. That's not where we expect to see God. And in this text, I think we have more of that theology of the cross. When we expect the kingdom of God to come in, we expect the world to change. We expect everything to be made different. But here in the Gospel of Luke, when freedom is proclaimed and good good news is proclaimed, when Jesus is talking about recovery of sight and the oppressed go free in the year of the Lord's favor, the world doesn't look any different. At least not yet. The only thing that's different is that potential for that change has stepped down from heaven and into our midst. And so I think for us, on a regular basis, <coughs> it's easy to think that nothing ever changes in Arnsville. It's easy to think that nothing ever changes in Adams County, but we don't know when things will change. We don't know where the Holy Spirit will rest once again, and especially in the midst of everything that's been happening in the year and a half that I've been here, I am firmly convinced that the Spirit of the Lord rests on us here, on all people. But the Spirit of the Lord is doing on something with us here in this place. I think the so what of the moment is that just like Luke ties all of God's history with humanity into Jesus and into that specific moment in his hometown, I think Christians can come to understand that all of the Hebrew story and all of the Christian story is tied into us as well. It's our story. It's our moment. It's our time. If we were to write our genealogy backwards, it would begin with us in Arnsville and go all the way back to Adam, who is second to last on that line. And we all come from God. Our breath comes from God. And the kingdom made evident here in this place comes from God, too. All right. Well, I can see that I've been talking for about 20 minutes now. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this devotion. I hope it's not too long. We can always shorten it down next time. Who knows? But uh, as you go through a text study uh, in the future, feel free to use those three questions as often as you need it. Feel free to ask me anything about this uh, podcast or anything else you might have. And I hope that everyone uh, that's able to listen to this has uh, been able to have a good, safe, and relaxing time staying home from church this morning. Stay warm, stay dry, and we'll see you on the 31st. Take care.